stories to you. Um, over the past few weeks since I um, was given it by Rosemary, the curator of the festival. Congratulations, mostly. Thank you. Um, I guess I always like to start these kind of things, like as a writer myself, I would love to ask you, why do you love to write? So I'm at this point in my career where I think of writing less as something born out of desperation which it was when I first started writing and more so as an expression of a set of political and theoretical interests. And so to me, writing is one way of rebelling against the imposition of various systems of meaning, um, colonial ones in particular. I think of the various writers and theorists who have read for many years now, writers uh, in Canada, but who have a sort of global point of view like Dion Brand mm. and Leanne Batasmasak Simpson, for whom freedom is a practice we have to insist upon. Yeah. And I think through writing, we can actually reveal the ways that what is quote unquote normal life has all of this baggage and is for many um, a site of, of suffering and pain. And so uh, literature and art more broadly construed are tools for um, or with which to to make a kind of joy that uh, is for those who have been marginalized. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I feel like writing in a sense is a way that you can present what is real in mm -hmm. such a, you know, self-encompassed thing. I feel like many people are having so many different discussions about many of the issues that you bring up in your book, but I feel like mm -hmm. it's not until it's, you know, this beautiful self-encumbered thing that there is no, but what if, or what about this? There's no yeah. room to kind of jump in. It's, I feel like reading this book for me was such an experience of sitting quietly and listening mm -hmm. um, and you know which I think that especially leading into 2021 after the year that was 2020 with so many things going on I feel like now is the time for so many of us to sit and listen but it's also a time for so many you know marginalized voices to finally be heard amongst you know the hum of of the world as you mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. yeah um I watched an early interview with you recently where you talk about, um, you know, bridging the gap between, you know, um, creative literature and the world of academia. And, mm. you know, I feel like so many people's perspectives of someone who works in academics, especially here in Australia, um, is very different, you know, than you um, as a person. And I guess, can you tell me a little bit about, how you do it so well to bridge that gap. <laughs> yeah. So I came of age as a quote unquote academic 
in Canada at a time when all public institutions were grappling with what we call here reconciliation. So we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission doing its work in various cities, revealing the brutalities of the 20th century, their ongoing impacts, the intergenerational trauma, and calling upon all sectors of, of the country to carry out various initiatives and, and implement policy that would refuse to reproduce mm. colonial power. And so universities, uh, they were one of the front lines for figuring out what something like indigenization or decolonization could look like in public life. And one way they did that was by you know, recruiting indigenous faculty and publicizing their interest in, in developing programs in indigenous studies or programs with indigenous content. And um, so that opened up a path for me that I couldn't quite envision before. And I um, came to poetry at the same time that I came to theory. And so I was reading Foucault and Jose Esteban Munoz at the same time that I was reading Denez Smith and Ocean Vong and seeing in the unlikely resonances in their, in their bodies of work, um, something that felt livable. Yeah. And a kind of artistic practice. And I always say when asked how I bridged poetry and theory, that I think poetry and theory are streets, you know, in the same city of art and that they do intersect and I'm somewhere on one of those points of intersection because they both require of us uh, a sensibility that the present isn't all there is. We have to allow ourselves to be enticed by what isn't present. I think of like th this black feminist mantra from um, Denise uh, Ferreira da Silva where she says, we have to live as if we are already in the future we want. And I think that's where our poetry and theory fuse in that insistence on some kind of otherwise. Um, and so holding on to that approach in, in academia, I think is how I've managed to survive because of course it's not without its structural, you know, inadequacies <laughs> yeah. and its own kinds of structural violence. Uh, and so for so long being a place inhospitable to indigenous knowledge. Um, yeah. I, I love, I've never thought about it that way in terms of like, you know, poetry and theory sharing this thought of the unknown. Cause I feel like a lot of people, you know, poetry, I guess, especially here in Australia gets written off a lot as something that we either study when we're at school and it's what we're told to read and we're not 
you know, recognising that poetry is really everywhere and it's all about the nuances of language that really make, you know, poetry what it is. But I feel like that beautiful gap between, you know, we sit and, and we study theory and, you know, scientists always delving into the unknown. And I feel like that's such a beautiful meeting of the minds to go, well, that is exactly what poetry does every day as we, you know, live and breathe, whether you're a writer or a consumer, you're coming across it in, in one sense of the term, you know, no matter what you're kind of doing. Um, and, you know, speaking of poetry, your debut poetry book, you know, The Wind is a Word, tell me about your poetry process, you know, because I um, know a lot of different poets, like as a poet myself, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, the poems come to me, um, which is like, you know, <laughs> I've definitely thrown that phrase around myself a couple of times, which, you know, I don't really know how true that is or, right. you know, what is actually happening, but it sounds really nice when you're talking about it. So um, I guess like, what is your process in that kind of sense? How do you like to write your poetry? There's something so deeply mysterious about poethood. I think we can never really pinpoint what makes us a poet. That's there's some mix of uh, experiences and dispositions and interests and accidents that compel us to write poetry. For me, I tend to to paint a particular origin story that begins with my undergraduate studies mm. and in um, comparative literature, I was taking a whole host of courses in women's studies and in native studies. And for the first time in my life, being empowered to think of myself as a political subject, as someone bound up in a particular history and coming into the knowledge that my life and my family's life were structurally contingent. Hmm. And so how I dealt with that knowledge, which is both beautiful and terrible, is by writing writing poetry and the my process of like consciousness raising aligned with my process of of becoming a poet mm. and i i think holding on to that diagnostic impulse to make some kind of sense of the world and my place in it is what continues to to motor the writing of poems yeah and you know you talk so much about your um indigeneity and um it's such an important backbone of the book and i think that this is that really is what has made this book to the top of my list in terms of a must read. And like what I said, it really is that process of sitting and listening. Um, and it sounds to me, you know, reading through the book that it was quite, you know, both a painful process and both a cathartic process. And I'll get into a little bit more about the paradoxes that you talk about a little bit later, but 
you know, working through that body of work, how long, you know, are you constantly writing and then recovering, you know, what you're, you know, writing. And then also there's, you know, you're dealing a lot with past things of not just yours, but generations gone by, you know, how that's quite a lot to shoulder, you know, it's not a quote unquote normal process of, of writing a book, you know, how do you kind of manage that journey while you're going along the way? There's um, that famous quote, I can't remember by whom, that when someone becomes a writer, um, they kill their family or something. Oh, you got to hyper- your darlings. Yeah. Yeah, something to that effect. Um, very hyperbolic, very violently coded. And I remember thinking about what the opposite of that aphorism was can one actually write in a way that nourishes their family or their community and i think that indigenous writers in particular have been doing this for a long time and from my experience i wanted not to write in a way that would destroy anyone or or bring any kind of shame or turbulence into anyone's life, but rather to to um, contextualize and historicize. And in the case of my grandmother, my cookum, I wanted and I continue to want to write in a way that sheds light on the sociologically significant ways that she cared for my brother and I and defended our lives. It was not just that she was caring for us, but also defending us against the ongoing movements of, of coloniality. Mm. And I think, as I say across my books, in one way or another, I write because I saw, or I can see now in our, in my childhood, my being raised by her, evidence that another world is possible. And I think when one begins from that kind of forward moving framework, as opposed to say a framework of deficiency or damage, you know, these are ways that Native people have been historically known to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, If we abolish those and begin from a place in which our literature and our art uh, instigates joy and and freedom, then our work will nourish those whom are implicated by it. And I think it's so, you know, true when you're talking about that whole phrase of, you know, like killing your darlings. And I feel like, you know, especially in memoir writing um, is very, you know, it, it's it's a common kind of practice, you know, to be able to, um, people use it a lot of the time to air their grievances about those closest to them. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, you've written this book to 
raise up almost, you know, those, those closest to you and those around you. Um, yeah. So, you know, you write this book and I feel like I really did feel as though your words became this sort of net for especially your family in terms of almost putting up a defensive front in a sense, like for your story and for mm-hmm. your family. Is that kind of, you know, that, that process that you really went to, it feels so purposeful to me. Yeah. And I, there's an essay in the book, Fatal Naming Rituals, where I look at how for many decades, critics and the general Canadian public have understood Indigenous writing not as an artful practice, but as proof of various terrible ideas. And so I figured with the preface and the the short theoretical note that I had to build the interpretive scaffolding Mm. as a kind of defensive mechanism to, to ask my readers to be brave enough to rebel against these time worn tendencies in, in, in reading and reading practices that are bound up in colonial rule. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like you could have, you know, being an academic, you could have kind of sat down and wrote this book as more of a textbook in a, mm-hmm. in a loose kind of term, you know, that's very easy that that could have been done and it could have been, you know, quite a linear book, but I feel like the reason that it is so impactful, it feels to me like these you know, this beautiful mosaic of ideas coming mm-hmm. together. There's so many different mediums that you use. And I feel like, you know, once again, it's it's sitting and listening. But I feel like if you're, you know, just reading something in a linear fashion, it doesn't give you that time and space to really take in as a reader what it is that you're actually, you know, listening to um, and, you know, reading. And I'm always a big believer that poetry is like written to be heard. It's, you mm-hmm. know, that like you know the big thing that you know often gets missed and I really you know even I've read you know all of these like reviews about your book which are all amazing and a lot of the time they it gets kind of pinholed as a memoir but to me I feel like it's so much bigger than that and it's not just you know what you're writing about it's all of the different you know mediums that you use you know you start the book off you know in in second person for example you know writing to someone else and Mm -hmm. How did you, I guess, decide which mediums you wanted to use and when? And how did you almost assign those to things that you wanted to talk about throughout the book? Yeah, I was writing, I began writing the book in this period of literary rebelliousness. I didn't want to write a conventional story. And I thought, though this can be very useful i was frustrated with how it seemed to me that indigenous writers or books about indigenous people and indigenous communities had to begin with um you know at the point of contact or had to do this kind of anthropological or historical analysis in order to situate readers who are unfamiliar with 
our lives and our in our political histories and traditions and i said well what if what if we don't start there what if i really zero in on my life and write not to appease some broader unknowable audience but to uh express my creativity and so i was reading writers like maggie nelson and fred moten and ben lerner and um all kinds of all kinds of poets uh from whom i i learned that formal formal tradition is just that a tradition and one can break from it and secondly, knowing that there are various colonial forms in which ideas about Native people have been transmitted and thinking about refusing to you take up those forms and to, to do things almost like formally intelligible or unintelligible, sorry. Um, and I also wanted to honor, you know, what, what intuitively I saw made sense. And so there are various prose poems in the book that really aren't memoiristic, but I thought worked up this kind of emotionality that mattered to me. And I thought what needs part of how we get out of these older modes of relating in the colonial world um, is by, you know, feeling the, the, the emotional totality of indigenous life. And I thought if I can write in a way that's emotional, which poetry has that as it's, you know, genre framework uh, then perhaps I can you know create another space of of embodiment absolutely and I feel like you're right you know you do combine you know this beautiful long form you know narrative poetry and then um, there are you know some linear elements as well and I guess I, I've tried to, you know, think of the most accurate term, but I just want to ask you, how would you describe, you know, a history of my brief body to those <laughs> who I know are, are very excited to read it and I'm trying to, you know, find the right words to be able to describe, <laughs> describe this book. Yeah, it reminds me of a colleague here in Vancouver who taught the book to his grad students this year and was like, I kept, he said, I kept trying to figure out this exact conundrum of how to describe the book yeah. and how to teach it. And he said that, and I just kept thinking it's poetry. It's really a book of poems. Yeah. Um, and I thought that makes more sense to me than a memoir. And a memoir is attached to it because it has marketing value, that term. Yeah. But I'd never classified it that way. That was the work of various folks on my publishing team. But I think of it more as 
an extension of my previous two books, which are poetry. And so it's perhaps a like poetic, um, a, a collection of, of, of poems and essays, perhaps that <laughs> clunky, <laughs> but it kind of, I know I was thinking of it as like auto, auto theory in the vein of Maggie Nelson and um, Kate Zambrino and, and um, others who take up that term. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned briefly before um, Ocean Fiong, whose book I absolutely adored. And yeah. um, it also kind of reminds me of the work of Saeed Jones, um, which, you know, really has this such a beautiful complexity, like complex depth to it. And you kind of, what I found, you know, when I was reading the book is kind of, you know, you're reading along as you, you generally would, you know, like sitting on a bus or just at home. And then suddenly you like, feel everything that you're reading and I feel like you know that is the beauty of poetry right mm -hmm. it takes its time but it kind of will will hit you in the gut when you kind of you really need to be able to hear and listen to you know yeah. what what is kind of going on and um I'm such an advocate um for poetry and trying to you know raise poetry to this level of like quote unquote cool again for you know like a mass <laughs> audience <laughs> and it's it's tough but I feel like you know books like yours are really going to go such a long way to connecting with that audience and reminding them of exactly what poetry is um I guess like you know so you're you're a teacher you know you're an assistant professor at the University of British Columbia at the moment are you kind of finding this you know, trend with your students? Like, what are they, you know, writing about? What are they wanting to read? You know, right. are you able to kind of, it's so great that you can almost take them on this journey with you, you know, you're mm -hmm. showing as a writer and then also kind of nurturing them and their work in the same kind of semblance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this past fall, I taught two poetry seminars, both about politics and form. And in the one for undergrads, I had a student who is in Gen Z, so younger than I am, tell me that they loved the class because they read so many writers of color and that their education was still predominantly the experience of being assigned white men. Mm. And that was the case in high school and that has endured into post-secondary. And I thought, you know, that was predominantly my experience. And if even the newer generations are experiencing that kind of reproduction of the quote unquote canon, the Western canon, the white canon, um, that means the work that we who are, or who have a kind of activist sensibility or political uh, momentum in the classroom but the work we're doing is important and there's a lot at stake and it's the work of showing that the lives of people of color, queer and trans people are, you know, brimming with possibility and, and artistic um, brilliance and uh, subverse, subversiveness. And um, in those classes, I wanted essentially uh, to show that the um, 
that we have to theorize about the world as we are inside it, life as we are living it. Hmm. Um, and to essentially to feel and to feel as much as possible. And that's our, that's part of our, you know, armor against the, the, the ways that, you know, these systems with big names like neoliberalism and racial capitalism, mm. you know, are target our ability to, to feel and, or attempt to exploit and co-opt our feeling power in the name of profit or property or, or government. Um, and so, yeah, I think of, of my teaching as a kind of instruction or to instruct about what freedom might look and feel like mm. from a decolonial queer feminist perspective. Yeah. You know, like there's so many, you, know, you mentioned a few of them, and there's so many almost like conflicting like paradigms, you know, mm. throughout your book. Um, you know, I love the line where you talk about, you know, I wasn't born to love myself every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as a queer person myself, I definitely understood that, you know, from my kind of perspective, but, you know, um, with you and like your indigeneity and like oh, tackling, you know, this colonialist idea, there's so many layers, you know, on top of, you know, your queer identity as well as like your indigenous identity, you know, that's um, how you kind of dealt with that was a very complex kind of, I felt like it was almost this unpicking of this giant tapestry and kind of seeing, you know, this real image kind of beneath that. It's, it's you know, I don't even know re- where to really begin when I'm tackling, you know, so many paradoxes in your book. And mm. I love the way that you so effortlessly weave queerness into your book, but also, you know, talk about it's almost like limitations in terms mm. of that. And, you know, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't ever want, even when I write about joy, I don't ever want to negate the fact that we are still suffering and that I still suffer and I that you know sadness is a part of the fabric of my personhood because of the ways that various structures of oppression continue to stymie flourishing for people of color queer people for people of color in particular and the various essays um as i say pretty you know clearly in the titular essay that my experience of being a closeted queer person indigenous person in rural northern alberta uh, was so like existentially metaphysically uh, like shaky or um, overdetermined to the extent that you know I at one point couldn't under couldn't figure out what a world or couldn't picture what a world in which I was you know happily openly 
queer and indigenous would look like. And I think, you know, now that that is less so that the tides of history are are moving in a way that is hopeful. I think about I have younger siblings who are like thirteen and ten and how they're already they already have the language and yeah and in a in a way that I never could. But anyway, that's ten tangential <laughs> but um yeah I never I sometimes when I wrote a few years back I felt this sense of of wanting retribution and it, that you know infiltrated my poems and even in instances in this book there's a kind of accusatory or or retributive impulse and I want I want to give space to that and not think of it as unliterary and being empowered by black poets in the United States especially who write very beautifully and and um artfully about rage and anger and you know going back to Audra Audre Lorde and and others in her generation and um Yeah, channeling, channeling the, the emotional, the whole emotional spectrum, and, and because of that, being able to address, you know, all these these you know intersecting forces. Yeah, it's definitely I you know I don't envy your position trying to write it all and having it all kind of coming to to a point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in so many ways you write with such an open-ended intimacy is, I guess, like, you know, the way that I would like to describe that. And with that must come this massive open-ended sense of vulnerability. You know, do you, what kind of process do you go through when you're writing? You know, um, there's definitely so many intimate moments in the book. You know, what is your process behind you know, writing it, I guess, but then also in another semblance of like knowing that it's going to be read. I feel like yeah. they're two, you know, <laughs> they're two like, you know, totally different things. And, um, you know, it's, it's such a balance, like as, as a writer trying to reconcile, you know, those two points as well. Yeah. So I think when I write, I write in a kind of ignorance about the possible fallout <laughs> and I think that has that occurs because I know that these experiences are so rarely written about hmm. in Canada there are so few queer writers queer indigenous writers um, though there are more of us coming you know coming into the scene but you know, there's still so few of us. And I thought, I have to write about these things with as much clarity and honesty and vulnerability as possible, because this might be the first instance in which someone sees themselves or feels validated or, yeah. or sees a body in a book that they can 
inhabit, so to speak. Hmm. And I felt a kind of gravity about that, that allowed me not to be overcome by what uh, others might think when they read it. But now that it's published, <laughs> I do sometimes randomly, you know, in bed at nights, have like these uh, thoughts of like, I can't believe people know X, Y, Z about me because I wrote about it. <laughs> and, like, yeah, that's so funny to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I, you know, I, I will say I sometimes, against better judgment, check like Goodreads and other reader responses. And oh, that is a tough, <laughs> that is a tough do, road to walk. <laughs> I do see people discussing these things. And um, I even had, I even saw one where someone was like, I, I picked up a history of my booth body, hoping that Billy Ray maybe wouldn't write about like intimacy as much as he usually does and I was like why was like how is that even <laughs> something that you thought was possible <laughs> like, what is that? like it's so strange like you know as yeah. a consumer of books to be like I really hope this author that I like doesn't continue to write the way that yeah. it's usually written but you know it's like we'll give it a go anyway like it's such a yeah. masochistic like way to read yeah. um you know, but I love, like, my favourite line, to be honest, in the book is, like, your author's note when you say, you know, if I were to rank my aesthetic concerns and ambiguity would come before veracity. Mm. I absolutely love that line. And I knew when I read that, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm in for, I'm in for a while. <laughs> and I feel like that really does, you know, it kind of gives you this caveat of, of writing about, you know, these intimate things. Because I feel like a lot of the time, you know, readers forget that, you know, writers are writing from the writer, you know, we're not mm. like omniscient, all seeing kind of, you know, individuals and, mm. you know, reading these super intimate kind of moments, like you said, is so important, especially for young queer people, especially for young queer Indigenous people to be, you know, recognised and heard. And I feel like it's such a leaps and bounds of this representation to you know unlocking those parts of of yourself that you might not know are there it's just like mm. you know I know as a young queer person who really didn't understand it's like you I always describe it as carrying around this friction of not kind of understanding like what's happening and feeling like you're going along for the ride in your own life in a semblance mm -hmm. until you kind of working out and, and discovering you know bits and pieces about about yourself so like for me I really appreciated so much you know those those like particularly intimate sections mm. and you're right like you know if you don't write it then are we just waiting for someone else to yeah. write that so we can have that in existence you know mm. and I feel like the more the more we read it, the more that we will see it in a sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you talk about as well, and I kind of did have a chuckle about you trying to write a novel in, you know, fragments of half existence. <laughs> you know, I loved, I loved that line um, in particular. And it was kind of, you know, 
during a summer of sadness, I tried week after week to write a novel and I just loved, like I could really see you, you know, sitting down and kind of going through that process. Mm-hmm. But you talk about the way that, you know, um, novelists are known for saying no to the world. And I didn't know that I thought that about novelists beforehand until I read that line. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know how to explain just how true that is. And I know that I'm being biased, you know, as a poet, I'm not a novelist by any means. And, you know, poets are saying yes. And I feel like there is this sense of openness to a poet. Like, is that kind of what you were thinking about when you were writing that line? Yeah. So that came out of, two things one how much time away from the world it takes to write a novel Mm. I thought this feels counter to like my political (laughs) commitments and like my queer social practices to be by myself at my desk all the time trying to write about fictional lives and then secondly coming up against also my tendency to want to fictionalize my own life and um, that felt like an expression of my poethood because I kept wanting to to begin from my sadness or to begin from my happiness and and not uh, try to inhabit some other abstract consciousness And in those early attempts to write fiction or to write a novel, many, a lot of which ended up in a history of my brief body, either in explicit ways or inexplicit ways, I realized that I, I wasn't quite done with the poetic mode. They kept, things kept getting nonsensical, things kept, being image heavy and you know those work say in experimental novels but not in not in the novel proper and so i wasn't actually interested in the form of the novel and i couldn't do the kind of intellectual and uh and emotional work that i was my body was still wanting to do yeah i feel you know and you're right uh you know thinking about this image of a novelist is almost like shining-esque, you know, like yeah. shutting yourself away and um, writing. I, I kind of see it as like pouring like so much time and energy into a, like a sense of untruth in a way, because it is fiction. But um, from what you're saying, you have so much time and energy for like your truth. And that was, you know, it comes through, you know, so clear and mm-hmm. in everything that you write. So um, as a reader, I'm much like, I, I would much rather read, you know, History of My Brief Body um, in in the form that it is than, you know, an attempt to try and fictionalise so many things like off, you know, right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you say things like how, you know, you pick yourself up off the page and, you know, throw throw myself at it again and, this kind of circular motion of, you know, throwing myself at myself. And I feel like that is how the book should be described in terms of, you know, it is really you throwing yourself at yourself in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I said in another interview that 
really the experience of writing a memoir is, or writing about oneself is the experience of turning oneself into another person. Yeah. And so you know, for there to be two versions of oneself, ultimately the same version, but um, I think also is an expression of, of the poetic. Yeah. And I mean, the book, like for, for us, it comes out on the 4th of May. Um, and I'm super excited for Australian audiences to finally be able to read it. But I guess, finally, is there anything that you would like to, you know, tell an Australian audience about the book that we might not know, we might not get a chance to, you know, read or, or hear about? Very interesting. Well, I think that it is a book about a queer Indigenous life in Canada, but it is also a book about longing and joy and desire and sadness and loneliness and theory and ideas. And these are things that I think transcend context, but also will be given another kind of context in another part of the world. And also I know, you know, Australia is like Canada, a, um, a colonial state. And that um, I don't know, you know, the particularities of what, uh, what that looks like in Australia, but I, I, I do know that um, it's something that your country is grappling with and that um, I'm sure the book will, will resonate in that register as well. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely still have such a long, long way to go. Um, and books like yours, I think, are such a great, important stepping stone to talk to the generation who will listen, I think. You know, it, this is a, I, I also describe this as a book for young people, um, but, you know, that, that kind of covers such a, such a wide spectrum of, you know, what I'm, Kind of talking about so I feel like so many people they will grab and and hold what they what they want from this experience of reading you know a history of my brief body and mm-hmm. you know thank you so much once again for you know chatting to me and also writing the book and I'm really excited for everyone to read it basically yeah thank you so much for the interview no worries at all to you.